look at when we're considering Christmas. I almost feel like it's like a second tier Christmas gospel because Matthew and Luke tend to get the first tier status because they have the prophecies, they have the historical events, they have the genealogies, Mary, manger, Joseph, donkeys, camels, the whole nine yards with it. But John doesn't feature these. We don't get the star in the night or the wise men or the manger. Instead, John starts his gospel out considering the implications of who Jesus says that he is. The book of John is also a unique book for our congregation because John's gospel was written to a group of Christians coming to further understand the implications of who Jesus is. And so like many of us, we identify as people of faith. We say we have a relationship with God, but we too are trying to come to a deeper understanding of who this Jesus person is. They had faith, but were still trying to understand like us. John's interesting also because it's as simple as a Bible study, and it's also denser than any theology book we can find. It has Jesus' love, but also has his holiness. It has his personhood and what he did as a man on earth, but it's also one of the biggest references to the Trinity that we have. Anyone who seriously takes up studying John, I would rager, couldn't help but walk away considering how they'd had God in a box for a while. And so this is where we're going to start off. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or human's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. So God made his dwelling among us. And presence is a powerful thing. It can make or break us. Having someone there for you in a critical moment can help you overcome odds that seem impossible, but also having someone you really wanted to be there for you not be there can make the easiest task seem impossible. I'm sure if we all sat around the table and shared stories about this, we would see it true in our own life, where there were times where because of the presence of another, we were able to conquer and overcome and other times where we felt passively passed by by our loved ones, we weren't able to do the simplest tasks. You can see it in kids who grew up in homes that had emotional support and family presence. There's a maturity and calmness to them when they face trials and tribulations. But for kids who don't have that consistent presence or support, 
Uh, there's this struggle to believe that people will be there for them in their time of need. And all of us, though, the extroverts who love to be with people and the introverts who tolerate being with people have felt the pain of being passed by and forgotten. Each of us have had our head hit the pillow at night and asked the question, am I even seen? Or am I even heard? Or am I known? And it was true for us as well as for those waiting on this promised Messiah. Now, this reality points us to something, though, that we were created for presence. We were created to be seen, heard, and known. We weren't created to have a best foot forward to give to people, but rather we were created to give our whole selves forward to God and to others. We were made to know God personally and experience the love and plan that he has for us. And it's the good news of John chapter 1. And this passage is like the hinge on a door with two sides. It holds both who Jesus is and what he came to do together as one. Now, if I can be honest, when I was a child, I was a little frustrated by this chapter that John wrote and his using of the phrase called the word. Because what I was experiencing at school was all of these people saying, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God. And so then I would see passages like these and think, well, John, wouldn't it have been easier if you just would have said, in the beginning was Jesus and Jesus was with God and Jesus was God? Wouldn't that have made things clearer for us today? But the thing is, is John isn't so much concerned with his 21st century readers as he is his first century ones the Greeks and the Jews that he's writing in this audience to. And you know, the tricky part about language is there's often different meanings depending on the context of it. Let's think about that for a second. Say you're a big baseball fan, and I ask you if you're a Giants fan, you're going to naturally think of the San Francisco Giants when it comes to that word Giants. Or you're a big NFL fan, and I ask you if you like the team, the Giants you're going to think of New York, not San Francisco. Back in 2012, you, some might remember that are the sports fans, uh, both the San Francisco Giants and the, NF, er, and the New York Giants both won their championship. And so it became quite the talking piece for the sports head on which giant team they were talking about. So John's use of the word is like that. Jews used it, Greeks used it, but they're asking, which meaning do you mean? And let's consider that. Now, the word is synonymous to having the same power and essence of the person who spoke it. Let's think about the old phrase, a man is only as good as his word. You could also consider word in the medieval context where kings would make a decree to all the land and it was as powerful as the king himself. And for anyone to rebel against that word from the king was like they were rebelling against the king himself. The grammatical word in the original language used by John here is this word logos. So in the beginning was the logos, and logos was with God, and logos was God, etc. And this word logos was jam-packed with meaning to these two community readers. Because for the Jewish readers, it stood for a person that is representative of God's will. So let's think about that. A person representative of God's will. 
And a great picture of what that looks like is Moses, right? He stood before the people. He gave the Ten Commandments. He was on the mountain when God's glory passed by. He was a representative of God's will. But to the Greeks in the audience, it had a little different religious meaning. Their understanding of this word logos was the intermediate agency between God and the created universe. Or in a simple way, the bridge between God and man. Logos wasn't so much about a person as it was a way for this Greek audience. So how do you leap from this broken world into the heavenly realm was their struggle with this word. And so what we find here is that John is saying it's both. He's using this wordplay intentionally. Logos is the chosen instrument of accomplishing God's will and is the bridge between God and humanity. It's a person and it's a way. It's a command and it's a completed action. It's the sign, it's the bridge itself. John is making this claim that this is what Jesus should be considered as. Think about later in John's gospel when Jesus is famously quoted as saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's the very concept that John is getting at here. He's the person, but he's also the way. And if using logos wasn't charged enough, he then goes on to list these attributes of logos, of this person that's representative of God's will and the connecting bridge of it. And the first attribute that we see is in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now what's that mean? John is making the case that the word is equal to God. He has no beginning. He was with God. The word was God. The word is equal to God in time, in proximity, in matter. He's God of God sharing the very same essence. And so at this point, the first century Jews and Greeks may have been scratching their head in John's class, like some of you are with me right now. But because Jesus is the representative and the connection between, John needs his first and his 21st century audience to see the implications of that. He represents God because he is God. He's the bridge to God because he is God. And there are three more things that John shares, though, and that is that through him all things were made, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So life was created, held, and sustained by him. In him was the light. And I stumbled onto this quote earlier this week preparing for this talk, and it's from an astronomer named Carl Sagan. And he says, to really make an apple pie from scratch, you must begin by inventing the universe. The representative and the bridge, the Logos, invented the universe and has all ownership of it. When we read Genesis 1 and it says, and God said, the Logos is the thing that is making all of these things. So not only has Jesus made it, but he's nourished it and sought its flourishing by being the light of it. And light is a lot like presence. You take it for granted until you're without it. For instance, we rarely stub our toes in broad daylight, but it's in the absence of light or when we're not able to see something that we stumble. Presence and light are also things that give us feelings of safety, 
And in the Logos, it's the safest place for all men. The word was the light of men that we may know God personally and experience his love and plan for us. And this was his original design. This is what we were made to be and to become. But, at, but if that's the way things are, why does it feel like we're all bumping our way around in the dark? Now, the Jews and Greeks and the average person of the greater Clare area have the same fundamental issue. All three of them know that they need help. But all three of them reject the idea of being inherently bad people. They know they're not good, but they wouldn't go quite as so far as to say that they're a bad person. See, from the Jewish perspective, they thought they were all right. They just needed God to help them achieve some things they couldn't do on their own. They needed someone to overthrow the godless government that they lived under. And if those people weren't in office, then life would be fine and flourishing. But from the Greeks' perspective, they thought they were all right. They were enlightened. They just needed the gods to help them transcend these earthly desires and troubles that they had to get to the heavenly world. If they could get rid of their stressors, their worldly problems, they would live in peace and tranquility. And from the hardworking men and women of our community, we think we're all right. We just need God to help us with our work and families. If we finally caught that break at work, or if our kids are healthy and successful, then life will be fine. We'd be living our best life. But because we can't do that on our own, God exists to help us overcome this last little bit that we can't do ourselves. All three perspectives know they need God's help. But God to save them? This sounds excessive. Because the Jews would say, look at us. We're God's chosen people. We're not bad. We just need help. Or the Greeks, they would say, look at us. We're so enlightened with our philosophies and our literature. We're not bad. We just need help. The good people of our congregation would say, look at us. We're hardworking, good, moral people. We don't smoke, drink, or chew, or run with boys and girls that do. We're not bad. We just need God's help. And this is the fundamental problem that keeps us aimlessly bumping around in our life. Everything's fine. I just need help, not saving. Now, I'm going to share something, and at risk of sounding like a heretic with this, let me proof say things real quick. Uh, I'm not saying a Christian needs two repentances to get into heaven. I affirm there's only one profession of faith needed in our justification before God. But practically speaking, here's what I've noticed to be true in the reality of Christian circles. There is kind of like there's two layers of repentance for a lot of Christians in our society today. You see, because we start out by repenting of the bad things we've done, but it takes a long time for us to finally repent of the good things we've done to try and earn God's love and favor. Let me explain that more. Generally, when I'm talking to Christians today, right, I'm the guy who does evangelism on campus, so I talk to a lot of people. Uh, Christians are very quick to admit that they're sinful or that they're sinners. But if I ask them if they're self-righteous, they'll argue with me about it. They'll deny it. 
They'll say they don't have a self-righteous issue. Let's look at it this way. What's considered a good Christian testimony in our circles is often the person who repents from their drug addiction, their sexually immoral life, their wild living, their gambling, or whatever it might be. But that's just one angle of what sin looks like. Sin is also when we do good things to get and manipulate God or others. The person who's trying to tithe their way into the kingdom of God, trying to avoid all reckless immoral living to look squeaky clean before God, the person who never misses a Sunday, whose kids are in all the Bible programs, all the VBSs, the person who memorizes Bible verses so that they can take the final exam at the end of life, isn't living by grace either. Both sides are missing the mark. Yes, we need to repent of how we've rebelled against God, but we also need to repent on how we've tried to bribe God with our good deeds. We are bad. We do bad things. And our good things are often backed with bad intentions. The Jews, the Greeks, and the people in this room are fundamentally bad, and they need saving, not just help. For each of us, our sin nature in living in a broken world has cut you so deeply that it's led you to live either this rebellious or self-justifying lifestyle. Some of you have been so deeply hurt from your past that you live behind, or that you live behind humor, sarcasm, anger, or maybe even selflessness to disguise how much you're limping through life to people. Some are so paralyzed by the idea of failure or being viewed as weak or being viewed as wrong that they're working themselves to death trying to prove how strong they are or that they're never weak or that they're never wrong. Some of you just want to be seen, heard, and known, and it keeps you up at night knowing that you're not. And as much as I want to tell you that there's a secret remedy to make this stop, I can't. Sure, you can do behavior modification. You can work less and take some vacations. You can make a good amount of money, live on some good property, have good kids and a good marriage, and have all your wishes about your circumstance come true. But that gnawing inside, that limp that you're trying to hide, will follow you everywhere that you go. You don't need to be helped. You need to be saved. And I don't mean some cheap religious, emotional mountaintop experience. I mean totally and utterly transformed. Not a shred of this old self will do as a part of this foundation. If we won't stop saying, I'm fine, I have it under control, then we're not ready to live by grace. But John 1 has good news for people who are done trying to fix themselves. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or human will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. To all who believed in him, he gave the right to be considered children of God. To all who believed he was the only one that could do the saving, 
he adopted as sons and daughters. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, that word became flesh is also a good thing to look at the translation with. Because if we were to solely go from a Greek to English translation, that word is actually going to come out the other end as tabernacled. And that's awkward to bring up casually in conversation. Like, if you invite me over for lunch after church, and I say I can't wait to tabernacle in your living room, you're probably going to uninvite me from your house afterwards. But that's because we don't have tabernacles as a part of our regular vocabulary or worldview. So we use a word like flesh to understand this. But like the word logos, it has a far deeper meaning to the original audience. Because you see in the Old Testament, God said, I will come dwell with you in a tabernacle. And it takes many long years for Israel before it finally happens. And it's built, and God comes, and he dwells with them at it. So there was one place, and God could come, inhabit it, and be with the people. But then it was prophesied that God would come and dwell with us as a man. And it takes many long-suffering years, but it finally happens. He comes, no longer confined to a building. God comes walking with, eating with, and spending time with us. And Jesus, who's fully God, fully man, not 50-50, 100-100%, the Logos, came to earth and did just that. The representative took on flesh to become the way. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus said he was coming to dwell with you all, where location and time and matter are no longer a constraint. We don't need to wait years for this one anymore. This very moment, his spirit can come and live inside of you, and he'll be with you always to the end of the age. See, because Jesus came to give us real presence, intimacy, and freedom. Jesus didn't come to set you free to be yourself. He came to free you from yourself. You've done enough on your own to complicate and bump your way through this life. His freedom is not a freedom to do whatever you want. His freedom is a freedom to do the right thing that you ought to do. He's freed you from yourself so you can experience a real intimacy and relationship and presence with him so that we can be seen and known and heard by God himself. And in our digital age, this is uniquely special. Because though this might come across as cheesy, we all view God this way in some way, shape, or form. God isn't merely liking what you're doing from afar. He's not scrolling through your life looking for your best and your worst moments. He doesn't capture this moment in your past as his gotcha for the future. No, he dwells with your every moment, strengthening you, giving you breath, making your heart beat, and inviting you to join him into this real presence with him. The light of the world has come, and in him is grace and truth found. Now, in order to experience this real presence and intimacy with your creator and father, we're going to have to need to let go of this idea 
that we just need help. That God just fills in the gaps of our life that we can't do on our own. We're going to need to give up. We're going to need to be losers. We have to call out to God to save us. Because he's the only one who can. We can't win this one. We can't earn this one. Jesus faces us in the closing of this Advent season, of this calendar year, and says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the sake of the gospel will save it. Jesus is looking at you and at me and saying, what good is it for someone to keep their dreams and hopes yet forfeit their soul? Is a dream or a hope of fixing yourself worth the exchange of your soul? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us the grace to become quitters? Would you give us the strength to be weak? Would you take our pride away that we would fall before you and ask for saving? Lord, would we stop running from you and finding answers in mountaintop experiences with power or with substance abuse or with sex or with attention or with money? And Lord, would we stop trying to bribe you into loving us? Would our lives be worship to you not tokens of I owe you ones. God, would your presence come? Would you melt the hearts that have fallen asleep in you? Would you melt the hearts that are stoned to you? And would this very Christmas we experience your Savior who has come and is coming again one day? We ask this in the power of the Holy Spirit and by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for having me. Merry Christmas. Who are we that a king would trade heaven's riches?